And we are in the book of Titus. So if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Titus, we will be in Titus for uh, three weeks. And then we are going to, of course, it will be, be Thanksgiving, and then we'll have Christmas. And what we will do then is we will jump back into Titus then um, at the first of the year. So I'm excited about Titus. Titus is a great book. Um, be warned, we will be in a lot of parts of different scripture. You know how I am. I don't, I don't preach from just one scripture. I, I, take, I believe the Bible interprets the Bible. So we're going to be all over. But the whole point is to show you that this is what Paul taught. This is what Paul believed. And Paul is consistent throughout scripture. So let's turn to the book of Titus. I'll give you a little bit of details about who Titus was. Titus was a convert to Christianity. And it is believed that Paul was the one who led him to Christ. And Paul was writing this letter to Titus. It was probably around 63 to 67 A.D., a little over 30 years after Jesus had died on the cross. Now, Titus was with Paul when he went to Jerusalem. When Paul goes to Jerusalem to be confirmed by the apostles before, the, before they, um, after the first missionary journey, he goes, to, he goes to Jerusalem to make sure that you know, this is correct before they did all that. He did, he went, and then he and Barnabas head off to Antioch, where then they are sent to do the first missionary journey. But he's in Jerusalem, Titus is in Jerusalem with Paul, and you can see on this map, uh, Jerusalem's down here on the side. We'll talk about the circle in just a little bit. But for now, uh, Paul was there, James, uh, Titus was with him, James and John, and, P and Paul affirmed his ministry to the Gentiles. And then Paul, uh, Titus would serve Paul's representative of the church at Corinth. And if you look at that little red dot up there, um, right by Athens, that's Corinth. It gives you an idea where Corinth is. The map is too zoomed out to actually show it on that kind of the map I use. But he was the representative to the church at Corinth, and he, he helped collect the funds for the poor. Um, that, that Paul, remember I talked about last week, that Paul would collect money from churches that were, 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 were doing well, and even the churches in Macedonia who, were, who had, had, were not doing well and yet still gave very richly from, their, from what they had to the churches in Jerusalem that were hurting. And Titus was sent to Corinth to help collect that and to lead that church in Corinth for the poor believers in Jerusalem. And Titus is held very much in high regard by Paul. So what Paul does is, Paul had been traveling around. He left Titus, took him with him, and left him in Crete. Crete is that island that I have circled up there in red. And he was to guide the church that they had formed there. We know that there were Jews from Crete in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit started the church. If we go back to Acts chapter 2, we know it says both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What had happened to the disciples were in the upper room. Holy Spirit came upon them, they came down and preached the gospel, Peter did. And they were hearing all this in their own language, and they were Cretans that were there, people from the island of Crete. Now the main theme we're going to see in Titus is that, is that what Titus is we are to be doing is our good works. But these good works come from our knowledge of sound doctrine. We don't do good works because it makes us feel good, though it does. We don't do good works because we have to. But we do. But we, we do good works because of the sound doctrine that we have, that we find in Scripture. I think that I think we need to hear more in our world today, because there's a lot of false doctrine in the world and in the church. 
Now, everything was not great in the church on Crete. Paul did not trust the Cretans. The Cretans' own prophets did not trust the Cretans. As we're going to see in verse 12 of chapter 1 when we get to it. But just like today, in, in the early church, there were problems. Heresies were coming in. Remember I said that it was, uh, the early church, it was originally people were Jewish, and the biggest persecutors of the church were Jewish. And throughout Scripture, throughout the writings of Paul and of, of all the other apostles, of, of Peter, and the writings of John, we see that there, there are a lot of times they warn the church, be careful. You know, there's going to be there's going to be snakes coming in amongst you. You know, when when Jesus said, "Upon this rock I'll build my church," was the, which was the rock that he was building upon was the fact that he was Jesus Christ, the Son of the Living God, that he was the Messiah. He says, "The gates of hell shall not prevail against it." And when we think about that, we think of external pressures. We think of all the things in the world that are building up upon us. The problem is, if we only think that way, we don't see the ones that are inside our churches that are causing us even more problems. So we must be careful. One of the jobs of the elders, and of my job, is to make sure that any doctrine that is coming into the church is right, is biblical. Unless the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't say that, and I'm talking about going to the context and the original language and what the original writers thought, what the worldview was of the original writers. That that's important. That because that 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 if we don't have that right, if that doctrine is not right, we're not. It's not going to push us to do good works. You know, the Apostle John would actually address this issue. He's talking about people that were, because you would have like a church in Antioch would send people to these other churches, just like Paul and Barnabas and, and, and they did and Silas did. They'd go to the churches and see how they were doing because they didn't have the internet, they didn't have web pages, they didn't have texting. The only way you could tell what was going on is if you sent someone or you sent a letter like Paul and and, and what John is doing here, what Don John does, what Paul does here to Titus, he would send a letter. But a lot of times they would send people to see. And this is what John said about some of the people. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So apparently people had come from another church, and they were in the church that John was in. And we know John was actually the bishop of Ephesus. He was the leader in Ephesus. They were... For if they had been of us, they would not have continued. They would have continued. He says, they've gone out from us, and if, but they're not part of us, because if they had been, they would have stayed with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed to the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. These heresies were a corruption of the faith. And, and while people seemed wise according to the worldly standards, they were leading people to ungodliness. Many of the heresies we see in our church today have the same characteristics and are doing the same thing. Now Paul had told Timothy that this was going to happen. He had warned Timothy, and he's warning us. He says, but understand this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. He says, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And he tells Timothy, avoid such people. That's how bad it was and how bad it's going to be. Now, in the book of Titus, in his letter to Titus, Paul does not specifically defend any doctrine or any wrong. He doesn't try to stop any wrong teaching. But he uses the mentioned doctrines that he does to encourage Titus to teach that sound doctrine. The sound doctrine that leads us to good works. Now, my prayer today and throughout this series that we're going to be doing is that these words given by God through the Apostle Paul to Titus would encourage us that it would build us up to serve God in good works. Striving forward to true doctrine with one thing in sight, and that's our eternity with Christ. So let's begin in the book of Titus. Titus 1.1. Paul, and by the way, it's kind of interesting about this, this, this book of Titus. There's only two other books that Paul, or letters that Paul wrote that his, his introduction is longer. This is the third longest introduction that Paul ever wrote in to anybody. And Paul was a writer. Hmm. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, it's interesting here, these few words that Paul says. Paul says he's a servant of God. Normally what Paul would say, was he, in his other letters, he says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. This is the only place that he calls himself a servant of God. The idea of a servant and an apostle, because he says a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, focuses on two of the main concerns that Paul has. The first one is that, the, that it's important that the elect have faith, that people have faith. Faith. He says in 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, it says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. God's desire is for all of us to have faith in Him and believe in Him. All. Now, God knows not all will. But that's His desire. And Paul's first concern is that we would have faith. He wants to, he's constantly trying to encourage us in our faith. Now, why would Paul encourage us in our faith? Because our faith leaks. Life happens. We hear other doctrine that leads us a different direction than we should go. It leaks out of us. We need our faith to be restored. We need to work on restoring our faith. So Paul is trying to focus on doctrine to help with our faith, that helps with good works. And the second thing he wants to do is he wants them to understand the knowledge of the truth that's going to lead to a life of godliness. This is what Paul told the church at Colossae about this. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are godly Godly attributes that Paul wants us to have. And he wants the church at Crete, he wants Titus to teach these things to the people. Now, on the Damascus Road, Paul had, God had started Paul on a journey, on a mission, to call out a people for God. 
And his, his purpose was to teach them the truth of God's word that would lead to godly living. That's the whole point of doctrine, is to lead us to good works and lead us to godly living, to godliness. Now, as I said, we can't do it alone. We're not good. Nobody is good. It's only by listening to Christ, listening to God, listening to his word and applying it to our lives that we can live godly lives that are marked with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. See, Paul's mission was not just to save people. His, also, his mission was to help them be sanctified. A big word I use with the kids, sanctification. It's this process of where I become each day. I need to become more and more like Christ. And guess what? I'm 57 years old, and I don't even think I'm halfway there yet. <laughs> and I won't know I'm there until I'm standing face to face with Christ himself. I get a little better every day, I think. I hope. Sometimes it's... Three steps forward and two steps back. <laughs> because I'm human. We all are. But that was Paul's intent. His intent was to share the gospel for people to believe in Christ and then for them to be sanctified, to be learned doctrine and learn how to walk in the Spirit and walk with God. We go through this process of sanctification here on earth. And God is making us more and more like Christ every day when we surrender, because we have to surrender to it. He, God could just sit here and say, all right, you're like Jesus. And guess what? It wouldn't probably wouldn't last. We, we, we need to be trained. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a runner. You know, if you're, if you're, and I don't understand why you would ever go running. I don't like to run. But if, if you're a runner, you don't go out and run a marathon the first time you decide to be a runner. What do you do? You, you do a small run. You don't do a 10K the first time you go. You build up to it. You, you, you beat the body you know, by, by stretching your muscles and, and doing things slowly, building up to that point where you can endure it. Well, guess what? We need to do the same thing spiritually. God is making us endure certain little things because there's other things we're going to have to endure, and we're going to need to endure it for a long time until he comes back. And I don't know when that is. But I know he's coming. So what do I do? I train myself. Spiritually, hopefully physically, not as much as I should, but I train myself physically and spiritually to be ready. Because the race I have to run before me, and, and like Paul says, I run the race as if I'm going to win. And he's not talking about running a, a race. He's talking about sanctification. Paul's concern was not that faith would have a beginning in everyone's life, which is important, but that faith would increase and lead to a life of godliness. And he tells the church at Philippi in Philippians 1.6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I love the Rocky movies. I do. I grew up watching them. And, and, and you look at it and you think, man, Rocky is a great fighter. And you look and you realize, number one, it's not Rocky that makes him so great. It's his coach. It's his coach that pushes him. It's his coach who sees in him the potential of what he can be. Any good coach will do that and will push you. God's our coach. He knows what we can do. And he pushes us to do it. He trains us. 
And he started, Jesus starts this work in us, and he's going to bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. And when is that? That's the day he returns. We are to pursue sanctification earnestly by applying sound doctrine of God's word to our lives. It, all of scripture is God-breathed. All of it is good for reproof and for teaching and for training. And when we do that, it leads us to good works that God has planned for us to walk in. Ephesians 2. And why should we walk in sound doctrine and seek godliness? And Paul tells Titus here, he says in verse 2 and 3, in the hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. See, the, the purpose of training, the purpose of faith and knowledge of truth that we are to have is because we have a hope for eternal life. A life that's this, this life doesn't even compare to that life. But I believe we're training for that time. But our hope is not some pie-in-the-sky hope that, for something that's intangible. No, our hope for eternal life is based upon what? He says it's because God has promised it. And God does not lie. If God says, I am with you always to the end of the age, guess what? He's always with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. Guess what? He'll never leave you or forsake you. It's based upon His promise. John 3, 16 through 17 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And many times we stop there, but I always like to go on to the next verse. It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus does not say that we, we might get eternal life. He doesn't say that it's a possibility that you can have eternal life. He says, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. There's not just some chance. It's not based upon, it's not based upon my godliness. It's based upon his holiness. But that doesn't mean I don't strive to be more like him. You know, we, we all have our heroes in our lives, and, and, and some of our heroes, we, we look at their attributes, we look at what they do, and we want to be like them. God needs to be, Jesus needs to be our hero. We need to be more like him. He doesn't tell us that, you know, we have our punch card, we get the right ones punched. No. There is no Christian punch card. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9, he says, who saved us, he's talking about Jesus, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul is saying that you, you don't do good works because, because of you. You do it because of the purpose of Christ, which was given to him before anything was even created. Our works do not save us. Our works are a reflection of our salvation. We do good works because we are saved. 
Jesus says that if we believe in him, we will not perish in hell's fire, but we will have eternal life. And this message of grace of God is for all nations and all people in the whole world. And and Paul's mission is to bring that message to the Gentiles. But it did not originate with Paul. It was promised from the very beginning of time. That's where it began. If we look, we can see this remarkable picture that God is drawing here. Paul stands at the crossroads of time. He's he's looking both ways at the grace of God that not only goes into the future of eternity, but originates in the past. It's the present. It has always been God's plan to offer grace to sinners through Christ. It's always been his plan. Grace began in eternity past and extends into eternity future. Because God's grace is inexhaustible. We don't have to worry about God's mercy wearing out or being not having enough. I you know, I, I know, you know, you mothers and fathers too, you know, if you've spent your whole day with your kids and you've been doing all kinds of things with them and it's the end of the day, you're, you've got about, what, that, that much patience maybe? You can't even see it between my fingers. You understand that God's patience never decreases. His grace never extinguishes. His grace is always there. And he he knows more than, you know, our kids do things we don't know about and sometimes that's a good thing. God knows everything that we do, everything that we think, and yet his grace does not decrease. Paul tells Titus in verse 4, He says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, he says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul calls Titus his true child, his child in faith. That's why we believe Paul was the one who led Titus to Christ. It is believed that you know, Titus was a Gentile and Paul was a Jew, but they shared a common faith in Jesus Christ. In our days today, especially with the turmoil going on in the Middle East, it's something that we, we kind of forget, you know, that not, not everybody was Gentile, not everybody was Jewish. And here we have a Jew who was a teacher of the law, now a believer in Christ, sharing and calling a Gentile his true child in faith. This idea of grace and peace are common in Paul's letters. He tells Titus, you know, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. When we as believers become completely convinced that we are in good standing before God, it's based solely on God's grace and not our goodness. None of us are good enough. We can't be. It is only then when we realize that, that we stand in God's grace, that we can find perfect Peace. Paul talks in Philippians 4. He says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever wondered sometimes how somebody could be in the midst of turmoil and yet they have peace? You look at their face and you're like, Wow, they're peaceful. Why? How does that happen? That comes from God. 
some knowing that God is sovereign. God knows what's best. God is there. He's, he's helping us through. Grace and peace are spiritual bounties that God supplies to us. He gives them to us. The world searches for peace and grace in the worldly things. It will never find it. It will never be complete. And yet, Jesus provides both of them when we trust in Him. And grace and peace from Christ provides a sufficiency that is good for every part of our lives. Again, in to the church of Philippi, Paul wrote in, in Philippians 4.19, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And our needs begin with God's grace and God's peace. Grace is vital to help us keep looking for true fulfillment of the blessed hope, the blessed hope of Christ returning which is what we will one day be like when Christ in all his glory and the glory of God the Father, the ultimate goal of our salvation is Christ returning and us spending eternity with him. And the, and the peace that Christ offers is not just peace between us and God. He also, within that, will help us to have peace with each other. That's why I, I get so, my heart breaks, especially recently with our denomination and some of the stuff that's been going on. And, and it's just like, are you guys even believers? On either side of the, whatever the argument was, I'm not even going to get into it. It's like, are you are you truly brothers in Christ? Then why are you acting this way? Why are you treating each other with such contempt? Because it's not right. And that's the peace that we get from Christ that goes between us and God, which we'll never understand, will also go between us and our fellow man, which we'll never fully understand. It's a peace that surpasses all our human striving for affections and the status that characterizes the world. We deserve, do we deserve God's affection? Do we deserve for Him to love us? No, we don't. But guess what? He loves us anyways. He loves us in spite of ourselves. That's love and that's grace and that's peace. And every one of us are in the same boat and we're all equal in His sight. Because Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So none of us have earned God's grace. When, when, we, had, when we first had Caleb, you know, uh, we, we obviously, he's not our natural born son, but we adopted him and we brought him home from the hospital. Had he done anything at that point to deserve my love? No. But did I love him? Oh, you better believe I did. Now, granted, when we first got him in the truck and I looked in the back mirror, the rear of your mirror, and I said, oh my gosh, what did we just do? Because <laughs> I knew our life was going to be changed. But I had such joy in my heart for this child. But he had done nothing. Well, he might have smiled. We don't deserve God's love. We, don't, we haven't earned God's grace. We're all desperately separated from God, but through Christ Jesus we have fellowship with each other and we should be marked, it should be marked by harmony. Our common faith, you know, Paul says, is my son in the common faith, should help us recognize that we are all need a Savior. And when we, when we realize this, then all that competition and the comparisons we have with each other because you need a Savior, I need a Savior. We all do. All that competition and all that comparison needs to dissolve in light of God's grace.
Because the forgiveness that God gives us, the forgiveness that's available to all of us, if we just trust in Christ, leads us to forgive others, to understand others, and to love others in our Christian community. If we're not experiencing this in our community, it might be that maybe we're not living in the godliness that we should, that comes through true doctrine. Because the fact of God's grace is family unity. Now, those are the verses, one through four, we're doing today. How do we apply this? We must first remember that there is no sin that is too large, that has permeated someone for so long that God is unable to forgive it. There's no sin that you hang on to for too long that is so great that God can't forgive. God can forgive. No matter how great the sin, His grace is greater. Second of all, our salvation is not based upon our ability to live up to God's requirements. God does not save us based upon our ability. He saves us because he loves us. Now, does that mean we can continue to walk in sin? No. It means we need to strive to walk in Christ and to be more like him. But that doesn't mean that when we stumble and fall that we're, we're done and he walks away. And when we repent, he, the relationship is restored. Just like if my brother does something wrong to me, I need to forgive him, even though he doesn't ask for forgiveness. If he, and if, he, if, he, if, he's, if, if I have, he something, has something against me, I need to go to him. Why? Because then I can reconcile with him. And we can forgive each other, and our relationship is mended. The whole point of it is reconciliation. God does not save us on our own ability. Paul told the church in Ephesus, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We aren't saved through what we do. We're saved by who we believe in and who we trust in. And that's even that, even the fact that we can believe in God, that's a gift from Him. Without that gift, we wouldn't be able to do that. It's not a result of our works, because I can't boast in my salvation. Look at me, I'm a believer in Jesus. Aren't I wonderful? No. No, you're not. And temptation is all around us. We have to be on our guard. We have to be sober-minded. As he told, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he says, be sober-mindful, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Because, see, we're not just thrown into the deep end of this world to deal with our temptation on our own. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he tells the Corinthian church, he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't be prideful, is what he's saying. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. We all are tempted the same. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, so when we're tempted, here's here's why people fall for temptation, why we all fall for it. Because when we're tempted, we're thinking, okay, and I'm going to use a bad example. So uh, it's bad because it, it hits me right here, or actually hits me right here. I love Little Debbie Cakes. I'll admit it. 
Now, is that a sin? No, obviously it's not a sin. But let me, I just want to use it as an example. I love Little Debbie cakes. Now, I can, I see them and I want them. So what do I do? I tell myself, oh, I'm just not going to look at them. I'm just, and when I do that, I'm doing it on my own ability. Okay? My own willpower. But that's not how we are to avoid temptation. We are to avoid temptation by trusting in Christ to help us through it. So when I see that little Debbie cake, what I should be doing is saying, okay, Lord, I know I shouldn't eat that. I'm not going to. Please help me not to do it. And he'll provide a way. See, the problem today is too many times we don't ask God to help us with our temptations. Oh, I got this. I'm good. I can handle this. I'm a big boy. I've done this before. And Satan's like, really? Watch. And the temptation gets greater. You want some little Debbie? You see a commercial on TV. You see a commercial on... I mean, it's crazy. I've watched this happen in my own life. But what I need to do is I need to say, Lord, help me in this temptation. Every time we look at the grace of God that Paul challenges, challenges us to put our faith in, we experience another facet of the nature of God. Because even when we fail, and we will, and we fall in temptation, God's grace is forever, and just we just need to realize that we've sinned, and we need to return back to Him, repent, and God's forgiveness is there. And His grace is sufficient. And then we need to return to walking in godliness. You know, last time I went to the eye doctor, talking about God's grace, I went to the eye doctor, and they take this machine, have you been there, if you've ever had, had your eyes checked, and they put this machine up, and they say, look at the chart, and I'm going to move the lenses, and so each time they move the lens, right, and they give you a different lens to see if it's clear, and you get to that one, oh, yeah, that's the one, it's good, oh, that's perfect, this one or that one, this one or that one, you know. But each of those lenses... We, that's how they determine which one is proper for your eyes. Which lens that's put before me makes the chart clearer and clearer. So when we look at God's grace and we see it from all the different aspects, especially if we're looking here in Titus, Paul is showing us a lens to help us see even more clearly the features of God. And it's through exploring God's grace that we learn that God is great, He's eternal, He's merciful, and he is a forgiving father. And how do we respond? We should think about what happens in Scripture when people encounter God. In Isaiah 6.5, we, you know, we just finished the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 6.5 sees God thrown high and you know, sees God sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And what's Isaiah's response? In Isaiah 6.5, he says, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. That lens has been put in place for Isaiah. He sees God, and he realizes that how bad he is. So when we see God's grace, we realize how insufficient we are. When Moses sees the burning bush, and he's walking up to it, he hears the voice of God in Exodus 3, 6, and he said, I am God. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses could see God through a different lens, the lens of grace. And he had to hide his face. 
He could not look at God. And then the book of Job. And Job finds himself face to face with the awesomeness of God. In Job 42, he says, And I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When we see the grace of God, when we experience God's grace, it should drop us to our knees. Job saying, I heard of you, I hear of you, and I believe in you, but now, now I have experienced you, and because of that I've seen you with my eyes, I despise myself. Because you are so great, and I am nothing, and yet you love me. That's grace. See, like a lens helping us see the eye chart, our clear vision of God's grace should make us feel fully aware of our sin and where we fall short. And in that process, it causes it should cause us to do whatever it takes to remove that sin from our lives. So no more stopping at the at the store and looking at the little Debbie aisle for me. You know, I I, I avoid that. If you know you have trouble with a sin, then avoid whatever leads to it. Sin doesn't automatically just, whoop, here's sin here, whoop, here's sin. No, there's a process leading up to it. But we need to remove any source of the shame in our lives and pursue godliness. But godliness does not make us worthy of faith. Because when we properly understand faith in Jesus Christ, we live out godliness. Faith comes first. And then God's grace, and then the doctrine we understand, then that helps us live out godliness. And it's God's grace that should prompt us to desire godliness in our lives. As Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, he says, I have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for what? For godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life. And what's the purpose of this? For the life to come. Our lives must be formed and shaped by true doctrine. Now whether we are servants, whether we are leaders, whether we're male or female, whether we are children or parents, old, young, God's grace manifesting our lives through the study of true doctrine in God's word should produce in us godliness.